And so John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify about the light, so all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Father, thank you so much for another year. Um, it is wild to me that it's December, um, and yet uh, here we are, and here you are, still with us um, as we gather each week. God, to remember and receive the work that you've done in the person of Jesus. And so we just pray that right now that you would open our eyes to see the light, open our ears to hear the word, uh, open our hearts to receive the life. And like John the Baptist in this passage, Father, would you um, now empower me to be a witness to that light that we may believe. And here we pray, amen. Go and be seated. Now, it being the month of December and this being a series moving us towards Christmas, I understand the wonder, the questions, the tension that many of you feel in having the opening passage that we're reading and even John's prologue being the text we're going to be in for the next three weeks to be completely devoid of, absent of any baby. I know that most of us are just so used to the, the nativity stories of Matthew and Luke's gospels that was, we get into the Christmas season and we arrive at some kind of church gathering. What we expect is some baby. We expect some Mary. We expect some wise men and some shepherds. And then to go out of that very like earthy Christmas story that most of us have like nostalgia and familiarity with to John's prologue, this like cosmic poetic poem in the beginning was the word. It, it's, 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 it can be kind of disruptive or tension. It, it's, it's difficult. Because in many ways, it feels as though John and Matthew and Luke are telling different stories. Just consider, Matthew and Luke's gospels open up Matthew with a genealogy, a family line. Luke with the story so far. John starts with in the beginning, the story before the story so far. Matthew and Luke's stories have this earthiness to them, this ordinary human life that's dotted with family travel and, uh, and baby uh, showers and, and all of these like ordinary little moments, right? Marriage, wedding plans. But through Matthew and Luke, you have these little sparks, these moments of flashes of heaven, of the divine, of the miraculous, John, on the other hand, is doing nothing but the cosmic, the heavenly, the miraculous with little sparks of like the ordinary in the human. That's exactly what happens in verse six. There was a dude named John, right? In the midst of all the cosmic poetry, John gets this little quick human, ordinary invitation. One is looking from one perspective and one from the other. It's just, it feels like they're telling radically different stories. Once again, where's the baby? And so the, the tension can be that we feel as though John and Matthew and Luke are telling alternative stories. But, and this hopefully shouldn't be too shocking for any of us here, the difference between Matthew and Luke and John is not two different stories, but two different perspectives on the same story. 
Matthew and Luke, as it's been said, are telling the Christmas story from the ground up. They're building up from the ordinary, real-world, historical implications. John is telling his story from the top down, the theology, the cosmic, the divine, and then he's bringing it in, and, and together they meet in the middle. And it's not that John is better than Matthew and Luke or that they're better than one another, that one of them are competing or, you know, the Mark's not even being brought up right here, the quick to action, no prologue Mark. None of these individuals, none of these gospels are in competition with one another, but serve as, and I'm sorry because this is the best illustration that I can think of, as a barbershop quartet, all singing the same song, but they're moving in and, and hitting on different things. John's gospel is the bass, you know, the deep, distinctive voice singing the same song, but with a completely different perspective on the story. And so while we need all four members of the gospel quartet, John's is uniquely helpful for us in, well, a handful of ways. One, for those of us who do get overly familiar with the Christmas story, John shakes us up immediately. He starts talking about the little baby story, you know, no wise men are brought up, no shepherds, but a cosmic God at work within his world. It shakes us up to reimagine the Christmas story. But I appreciate John in particular as he speaks to those of us living within a largely secular, pluralist, materialist worldview. And that's the way that we approach the Christmas season. He, he speaks with such an intentionality that it's, it's impossible for us to do what many of us have done with Matthew and Luke, which is to kind of, uh, what's the word, excise, cut them out from their larger context and make them a nativity story that kind of plays along with the Grinch and with any other story. In the words of one uh, Gawker, the now defunct Gawker, um, uh, Christmas is a wonderful secular holiday. It's a pan-religious you know, pan, personal pan pizza holiday. Everyone can pick what you want out of it. And so I just, I love this because you, one, there's so many missing, like, where's Elf? Where is the Muppets? Like that, right? Christmas Carol, it's okay. Some of you guys are obviously okay with who you see represented here. But you have Kevin McAllister in the place of Jesus. But notice within all of that, it's still the nativity tropes that they're playing off of within the illustration. As much as it's a secular holiday, it can't help but echo the nativity stories of Matthew and Luke. And so why John is so helpful is he reminds us and kind of resets our framework for what this holiday season is meant to be. What's this season for? John is speaking to many of the things that we now take for granted. He lifts them up and holds them and invites us to do the same. How are we doing so far? So what we want to do then for this series is look over the first 18 verses of John's prologue leading up to Christmas as an opportunity to allow our familiarity to be shaken up, but with it also to allow the cosmic and the divine to kind of break into our materialist worldview to allow our kind of separation and distinction from religion as, as seeing once again that there is something divine and cosmic and, and God at work within our world, within pluralism and a kind of, you know, whatever holiday you, and with it, whatever God and system you pick for yourself, that Christianity at least, and what John is getting at is not our offering one option among many. He's, he's, he's holding out something of unique value here for us. And so John is going to be our guide in this. And so... To begin, we start by looking over the poem and the one thing that stuck out to me immediately in the prep this week is it's a pretty wild poem that John 
builds out for us here. And he does actually, it's, you know, it's cosmic poetry, so he's going to be as clear as he can be. But he actually does a pretty good job of explaining and making connections, that you can follow his line of reasoning if you move slowly. But there's one thing in this poem, at least in these first nine verses, that John just takes for granted. John uses one word, and he assumes that you'll know exactly what he's talking about. Verse 5. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. The light just got explained. The light is the he who is the word, right? There's all these explanations. And John just assumes that when he says darkness, you'll know exactly what he's talking about. It's interesting that Advent doesn't begin necessarily with an assumption of the light, but an assumption of the darkness. As Fleming Rutledge writes over and over again, Advent begins in the dark. Advent presumes and bases its whole storyline and the good news of the good news on the darkness of the world. Now, for John, like I said, he's assuming that you all know what he's talking about when he talks about darkness, but him being raised underneath the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament, darkness was a a metaphor, a way of talking about a wide variety of things, chaos, evil, disorder, death, evil, Sin is a a one word that encapsulated, basically, in summary, everything that's wrong with the world. And so when he speaks of the darkness that he just assumes and takes for granted is that this world, that humans, that you and I are not as we should be. That this world is irreparably, destructively broken, saturated, brought down into the depths of darkness. And John just takes this for granted. Merry Christmas, he says to each of us. And so the great danger of this is here, just this is the starting point for the Advent story is Advent begins in the darkness. And yet most of us spend this season, these weeks leading up to Christmas, doing anything but addressing the darkness within our lives and our world. In fact, we spend the whole season avoiding it. What more is every single cup of peppermint hot chocolate and popcorn and movies and lights and decorating anything but distraction from the fact that we and this world are not as we and it should be. We hide from it. And what we do is we, we saturate ourselves. Rather than looking deeply and truly at the darkness, we, um, we give ourselves over to some of which I just named, the n- n- nostalgia. It's like if we can just kind of pretend to be a kid for a little bit, we can put off addiction, we can put off the bills, we can put off the sickness, we can put off our oncoming death that is coming for each and every single one of us, and yay, let's have fun. And so we click and we shop our way through the holidays. So we go into this nostalgia that then breeds a sentimentality, which the author Flannery O'Connor referred to as skipping lightly into a mock state of innocence. We skip lightly into a mock state of innocence that we are actually just doing fine, and this world actually is just doing fine. This is the story of every single Christmas story. No Christmas movie deals with the darkness. Every Christmas movie that you actually like are the ones that play off nostalgia and sentimentality in a mock state of innocence. Why do we like Elf so much? Because Will Ferrell encapsulates what we all want to be, a child, a grown-up child, and I love Elf. But this mock state of innocence gives then birth to an optimism that, it, that, that just simply an optimism about what the world needs and what is wrong with humanity and, and what, what we're actually capable of. The simplest way to just summarize this is an advertisement in the New York Times a few years back. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and we will create a world of unity and peace. Ergo, the darkness that John assumes that's overpowering within this world is something which we will be able to answer. 
is something that we will be able to overcome and that love will triumph, unity and peace. And so those kinds of advertisements don't work the rest of the year because we're just far too aware of it. But you give me a couple like Starbucks, like, you know, holiday drinks or whatever, and I'm, you know, doing popcorn and putting ornaments on, you begin to start to believe something like this. But, but just how many years has humanity been going through and yet we still have not put together a life of unity and peace? Love, however you define it, has not triumphed. The darkness is the thing that overcomes. And so this kind of optimism is actually precisely part of when John thinks about what he talks about when he talks about darkness is is wrapped up in this. You see, darkness within the biblical worldview is not simply that the world is plunged into chaos and suffering and disorder, but darkness is also used to talk about when applied to humans, our inability and ignorance to get ourselves out of that situation. Isaiah chapter eight, uh, from the message, because Eugene Peterson just paraphrases it so well. Describing those who walk in the darkness, who in chapter nine of Isaiah are gonna be the ones on whom a great light has now dawned, and then it goes on to talk about the wonderful counselor, mighty God, right? Big Christmas passage right before it. Here's the state of humanity. Frustrated and famished, they try one thing after another. When nothing works out, they get angry, cursing first this God and then that king looking this way and that way, up, down, and sideways, and seeing nothing, a blank wall, an empty hole, they end up in the dark with nothing. The optimism of the holidays gets us a few weeks into January, and then we find ourselves once again ending up in the dark with nothing. And so the, the, the thing is, is this can take hundreds of different forms, this looking all over the place, or in the CSB, the translation that we use, they they refer to that looking all over the place as looking to the earth. That, the, that to deal with the darkness, we look to the earth. And this, takes, this optimism takes all kinds of forms. It, it, it could take the form of a globalism, all nations, let's all work together and we can achieve some kind of future vision. Most of us have given up on that, but that was a huge optimism coming out of World War II. And that optimism then falls apart into a nationalism where our nation can be the hope of the world and we will bring all the cool stuff that we have to the rest of the nations. This is kind of where America was for the past few generations. That has now disintegrated into tribalism, which is that our party, us people, us versus them, we are the ones that have the hope. And as that disintegrates even further, we found ourselves falling into an optimism around the individualism. So there's this trajectory that we keep looking for the thing that's going to bring us out of the darkness. So we try globalism, and that doesn't work. We try nationalism, that doesn't work. We try tribalism, we find that that doesn't work. And so we turn all of our optimism for what's going to fix the world in and on ourselves. As though within me, to go back to the uh, New York Times advertisement, that I will be able to overcome the darkness. That I, my love, will be the thing that will triumph. And it just wears us down. We go looking for some new sage, some new mystic, some new strategy, some new procedure, some new technology. I just read this week that one of the heads at Meta referred to ChatGPT as being treated as the second coming of the Messiah. What more is that than technology having placed on it a sense of salvation from the darkness, right? ChatGPT is going to fix the problem with humanity. And so we keep looking for all of these things, and yet each of them, every single time, only leave us once again ending up in the dark with nothing. Just last month, The Guardian had an incredible piece on wellness, uh, the wellness industry, which is now a $1.5 trillion industry, the wellness industry. The headline was, we're sedating women with self-care. 
how we became obsessed with wellness. And that, they used too light of text here. But I don't know if you can see this, but the, the, the little subtitle for the drawing is that wellness culture offers some sense of salvation off the horizon. Advent, ladies and gentlemen. And so what they do to go on to identify is that what, why has wellness culture so blossomed is because as we've become ex- exceedingly pessimistic of what governments can do, of what our tribes can do, of what the world can do, we overlay on ourselves the weight of this world being fixed through our own caring for our bodies, our own filtering of microplastics, our own charging of our crystals, our own Peloton subscription, right? All of our, so if I, the world may be chaos, but if I can at least get myself together, then I will be able to overcome the darkness. And the problem is, is it falls apart. Now, you may not be into wellness. You might have eaten Taco Bell on the way here this morning. But we all have something that we're looking for, somewhere that we are looking to overcome the darkness. And every time they end with disappointment. Walker Percy wrote, Lost in the Combus Most. This was back in 1983. It is long. You're welcome. Um, Follow me. The peculiar predicament of the present-day self, 1983, surely came to pass as a consequence of the disappointment of the high expectations of the self as it entered the age of science and technology. Dazzled by the overwhelming credentials of science, the beauty and elegance of the scientific method, the triumph of modern medicine over physical ailments, and the technological transformation of the very world itself, the self finds itself, in the end, disappointed by the failure of science and technique in those very sectors of life which had been its main source of ordinary satisfaction in past ages. As John Cheever said, the main emotion of the adult American who has had all the advantages of wealth, education, and culture is disappointment. Work is disappointing. In spite of all the talk about making work more creative and self-fulfilling, most people hate their jobs. And with good reason. Most work in modern technological societies is intolerably dull and repetitive. Yes and amen. Marriage and family life are disappointing. Even among defenders of traditional family values, dreariness must be inferred if only from the average time of TV viewing. Dreary as TV is, it is evidently not as dreary as mom talking to dad or the kids talking to either. School is disappointing. If science is exciting and art is exhilarating, the schools and universities have achieved the not inconsiderable feat of rendering both dull. As every scientist and poet knows, one discovers both vocations in spite of, not because of school. It takes years to recover from the stupor of being taught Shakespeare and English Lit and Wheatstone's Bridge in physics. Politics is disappointing. Most young people turn their backs on politics, not because of the lack of excitement of politics as it is practiced, but because of the shallowness, venality, and image-making as these are perceived through the media, one of technology's greatest achievements. Spirituality is even more grossly disappointing. From TV evangelists with their blown dry hairdos to California cults led by prosperous gurus ignored in India but embraced in La Jolla. School life is, social life is disappointing. The very franticness of attempts to reestablish community and festival by partying, by groups, by club, by touristy Mardi Gras is the best evidence of the loss of true community and festival and of the loneliness of self stranded as it is 
an unspeakable consciousness in a world from which it perceives itself as somehow estranged, stranded even within its own body, with which it sees no clear connection. But there remains one unquestioned benefit of science, the longer and healthier life made possible by modern medicine, shorter work hours made possible by technology. Hence, what is perceived as the one certain reward of dreary life of home and marketplace, entertainment. Entertainment and good physical health appear to be the only ambivalent benefits of our age. So we are so disappointed, and our two rewards of the life that we have in our disappointment is what technology has afforded us with longer lives and more garbage to stream. Or good, good stuff to, I don't know, like you get it, like stream away. So this is the disappointment. This is precisely what happens when we go looking this way and that way, up, down, left, and right. We find ourselves staring at a blank wall. We find ourselves, as Isaiah put it, in the end, in the dark with nothing. Disappointment. And so this is where Advent begins, at least within the Christian worldview, at least within John's story that he's inviting us into. And it honestly is, until you get to this place of assuming the darkness with John, that now we can actually read and understand what he's getting at and why the story of Christmas is such good news. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So John's doing a couple of things here that really, you gotta be careful with John's prologue because like most poetry, if you begin to poke and cut apart at it for too long, it just kind of falls apart, right? You seeking to understand it ends up turning into like, you know, not a biopsy, but like, what's it called? The, the frogs in school? Autopsy, thanks guys. That's why you're here. Or a dissection, yeah, you kill it in the process. So there's a danger in any of the poetry of over-pulling out of it that you end up losing John's flow and movement. So I just want to point out a few big things. The first is John's opening words. In the beginning. Now, this is not simply just him starting. What he's doing here is saying, everything that I'm about to do is meant to be read as a connection point and a restatement of another in the beginning. Genesis verse 1. In the beginning. Oh, John, I see what you're doing here. God created the heavens and the earth. Now notice, the earth was formless and empty, and what? Darkness, chaos, uncreated disorder covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of those waters. Then God said, by his word, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated light from the darkness. And the story goes on where God continues to create through the power of his word. So back to John 1, John says, yes, in the beginning was the word. But what he begins to take this shift of understanding that he's doing some work here and he's connecting it also to Proverbs chapter eight, which we taught through a year or two ago. He's bringing together all of these, these stories around the creation within the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and he's beginning to reinterpret them in light of the person and the, what he saw in the person of Jesus Christ, who he's going to explicitly name in verse 17. So in the beginning was the word, everyone would agree with him, but what he begins to then dynamic is that in the beginning was the word, this creative power of God that was more than just his talk because it was with God. 
and it was God. And then we're given a pronoun, he was with God in the beginning. So what John is doing here is he's taking this cosmic creation story based out of Genesis and repeated throughout the Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, and he's, he's reworking this, and he's beginning to say that that, that self-expression of God into his world, the self-expressive creative power of God within the world was more than just God's talk. It was God himself while still being distinct from God, but God. And this one, Jesus Christ, is the God's self-expression, his creative self-expression within the world, who has now, and apparently always has been since the beginning, been he, Jesus Christ, the Word, who is both God and with God. John is laying the depth charges here for what would go on to be called Trinitarian theology, that God is a community of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are so tightly bound within one another and yet so deeply loving of one another in distinction that it breaks and shatters our conceptions both of personhood and community. But this is the God who is at work in creation and the God who is speaking and at work even before the darkness. So John's even beginning to set us up for here is in the midst of the overpowering darkness and the disappointment and the evil and the chaos that we face, he's introducing us into the one that preexisted all of that, what John will later say, the one who is light and in him there is no darkness. So we begin to go, oh, if there's going to be an answer for the darkness within the world, it's going to take someone who preexisted all of that, someone who is outside of that, someone who speaks over that. And so what John does, though, is, oh, man, we could just go all day on this. John is, okay, so John is, just tracking me for a second. John is speaking right here to his fellow Jews because he's picking up on Genesis and Proverbs, and he's inviting them along. But John's also like a masterful missionary because what he's also doing in using the word in Greek, logos, is he's also speaking to any Greek that picks up and reads his gospel. For, for the Greeks, logos was a philosophical claim about something, about this, uh, that there is a divine order to all created things. They wouldn't link it to the God of Israel, but there is some, some, some system, some order, some divine order to creation that is the logos, the word, the thing that upholds and, and, and holds all things together. That there's a system that may be broken, but there's a system that the world turns by in Greek philosophy. And so John is saying, yes, Jewish brothers and sisters, the word was with God and is God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And then to the Greeks, he also says, yes, the logos, what your own philosophy has led you to believe, that there is something at work within upholding all things, yes, and that his name is Jesus Christ. So John's doing this masterfully multicultural work that also continues even today as we talk and we think about our world. Um, I don't know how many of you are fans of Hayao Miyazaki's films. Um, no? Okay. Ponyo's the best. Um, I will fight you for that. Ponyo is the best. Um, but anyway, he, has, he, he came back he, after retiring, 10 years in retirement. He came back to do what will likely be his last film, The Boy and the Heron. And so Alyssa Wilkinson, who's one of my favorite film critics, she's now at New York Times, she did um, a review of the new movie. And... Um, this line, y'all. Okay, Miyazaki, whose films, uh, among them, Howl's Moving Castle, uh, My Neighbor Totoro, and Spirited Away, are windows into the subconscious. In interviews collected in the book Starting Point, 1979 to 96, Miyazaki referred to a universal yearning for a lost world. He refused to call it nostalgia because even kids experience it. We long not for what we remember, 
but what we've never experienced at all, only sensed beneath reality's surface. In dreams, yearnings break free, and Miyazaki's films capture that exhilarating terror to the Jews and to the Greeks and to the film critics. John says, yes, and his name is Jesus. So what's going on underneath all this is now when we begin to see the darkness of the world, the temptation is to believe that that's all that is there. And yet the logos, the word, Jesus, being the one who pre-exists and upholds all those things, invites us to know at the bottom of ourselves that no matter how dark and disappointing the world may be, there is something underneath it all. There is something upholding it all that is, in essence, not the darkness, but the light that the darkness is seeking to trample out. So he's working together this beautiful portrait of the light and the basis for believing that this is worth receiving or carrying or walking in. And so the light shines in the darkness. Man, there's just so much to be said here. I mean, this speaks to a materialist worldview that believes that only what is seen and what is measured is actually real. John is saying to the materialist, you have to come to terms with the fact that there is something beyond what you can see upholding all things. This conquers the secularist view that pushes God out of the world. This is that our very existence is based in him. And this pushes out any view of pluralism because in him was life. And the light of men, this line, in him was life. And that he was the light. This is so valuable within a pluralistic conversation because what we are saying here is not that in him was a light, but that he is the light. And so this is just a simple offering that John is saying, what I am arguing for is not one more option on the buffet of spiritual options for you, but the, the feast. That light shines in the darkness. Verse five, that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. You see, so what John now is bringing is now that he's, we've, he's assuming the darkness with us, now he's built for us who is this word, this light and life that is shining. What is reminded is that up from the darkness is breaking in the light, the thing that we're all sensing and yearning and longing for, but never able to find. Shining in the darkness, available and finding itself in the darkness. So once again, to all the human optimism that you'll be able to climb out of the darkness and then get to the light, the whole message of, of Christmas is that the light shines in the darkness. Presently in your darkness, presently in this situation, in the present tense of your life right now is, is the place where the light shines. There's an old saying that God never blesses anyone other than where they are right now. God only works for you in the present. And so if the light is going to break in, it means it's shining in the darkness, and that means just as much for your darkness right now. And for him to be the light in him in whom there is no darkness means that he is able to come as an outsider to the situation that all of us find ourselves empowered by. How many of you saw that viral video earlier this year of the snowboarder who fell in the tree well and was like basically left for dead? And then the skier came on them, GoPro thing? No, okay. Joshua saw it, okay. All right, well, okay, there's, there's me and him. This is just for me and him right now. Okay, so the way that, you know, the story, so the whole point of the story, snowboarder is snowboard. He falls into a tree well, can't, as a, in, in his, he's still in the board, cannot climb out, falling in, and so he's hearing skier after skier and people going by him. 
but the snow has come down from the tree where he can't be heard now. And it's beginning to get like, he later would say, I was going to die on my own, stuck in the tree well, until the skier comes by, a guy with a GoPro who sees a little hand coming out of the snow, stops and begins to shovel and dig him and then pull him out. The whole point was, again, I was going to die on my own. This is John's portrait of the darkness. Humanity, you, left to yourself, are going to die on your own. What you need, then, is someone from outside of the darkness, someone from outside of the situation and the scenario that you're within that can actually bend down and pull you out. And so that's part of what, what John's getting at when he says the light shines into the darkness is you are in a scenario and a situation. You presently are in a scenario and situation that you cannot get out of by your own strength, by your own conniving, strategy, or new guru. What you need is someone who has all of the power of creation, who is light and life itself, who is able to pull you out of this. And so that's precisely what he's saying in verse five. But the darkness always seeks to overcome. And so this is why John lays down a pattern that's going to continue throughout the rest of his gospel, that the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness always tries to overpower every single work that we do, turning all of our best attempts into a spark of light at best or an illusion at worst. And yet, when that darkness makes its move against him who is light itself, it cannot overcome him. And so when you read through the stories of the Gospels and you find Jesus being persecuted by Jewish and Roman leaders, when you find him tempted by the enemy, when you find him even going to his cross and dying, but three days later resurrecting, we find that at every turn when the darkness seeks to overcome the light, the light continues to shine even in the darkness there, overcoming the darkness as it seeks to overcome him. So all of this, I, I get, is completely um, maybe theological, maybe it's stirring your mind and your heart, but this is where I just love what John does. Just keep in mind what we're doing. The light shines in the darkness, the word, cosmic, divine, all this fun stuff. Verse six, there was a dude sent from God and his name was John. He came to talk about the light so that everybody might believe through him. Now he wasn't that light that I'm talking about. He just came to testify about the light. Do you just notice like the weird, it's like an interjection. Notice how if you look at verse five, the light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. It makes total sense to jump straight to nine. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That makes much more sense than there's a guy named John who was, right? What's going on here is John is, he's a masterful, not just poet, but also pastor. Because what he's doing here is he's one, setting up the rest of his story. There's gonna be a guy in a, couple, in a couple verses named John the Baptist. I'm telling you about him now so you don't get confused. He's not the one I'm talking about, right? He's doing that. He's also laying down a groundwork for what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that you don't become the divine light. You simply are a witness who testifies to it. But one of the things that I think John is really trying to do here in introducing this dude named John the Baptist is he's bringing all of this cosmic divine poetry and he's bringing it down into history. So in the same way that Matthew and Luke do all this work with like an earthly story and then we'll bring it up into the heavens with choirs of angels singing, John's doing the same thing. He's not letting you just take this as esoteric theology that you just think about and go, that, makes, that sounds right. He's saying this has real world implications on people's lives. This is more than just talk. This is about reality as you experience it, life as you live it. Or as he says in another way in verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone 
was coming into the world. So when we bring all this together, what we find here is that this light, who is the life of men and who is also the word, is that in our assumed darkness that there is in Jesus Christ all that he has set up here to say, that there is, going back to Genesis, there is a new creation that's beginning to dawn. Going to the Greek with a logos, there is an order of life that you have sensed but never been able to live into that is now being brought and applied to you. To go back to Miyazaki, that deep yearning for a world that's been lost is now dawning once again within our world. That the snowboarder trapped in the tree well is being brought up. That there is new creation. There is new life. There is a new light dawning within the human story. Not just in your mind, but in the life of like John the Baptist, your life as well. It has real real world implications on history. Because as he says, the light was coming into the world. Now, this brings us into kind of, as we begin to close, just practically, what, is this, what does this kind of deep-level theology and work do for us as we enter into this season? Well, this brings us in to, once again, the season known as Advent. For those of you unfamiliar, Advent comes from the Latin word that means coming or arrival. So just go back to, once again, verse 9. The light that gives light to everyone was adventing into the world. And so the season of Advent is all about the arrival, the coming of the light of Jesus Christ. Now, most of us focus on just one, but there's actually three ways that Christians engage with Advent. Uh, You'll see these behind me. Uh, The first is uh, the Adventist Redemptionist. This is what theologians call it. I'm putting it up here because it makes me look smart. But what this is, is simply by saying that there is, there's three different arrivals. And the first is the coming of redemption. This is the past advent, the past arrival of Jesus. What took place in nativity with Matthew and Luke when Christ was born to the world. And so what Christians do within this season is we intentionally set aside these weeks to celebrate that redemption has been accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. So we party, we celebrate, we put lights up, we do presents, we eat, not as an escape from the darkness, but now in assuming and remembering the darkness as a celebration that the darkness has been overcome. Similarly, though, we have a second one, which would be the Adventus Glorificamus, which is the coming of glory, which would be we look not just back at Jesus' first advent, we look forward to his future advent. And so we not, this whole season is not just one of celebration, but also anticipation. When everything that John 1 said was beginning to happen will become fully true. When the darkness will not just be unable to overcome the light, but then the light will fully and finally overcome the darkness. John writes later in Revelation 21. I did not see, this is his description of that future coming of glory. I did not see a temple in it. Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, that is Jesus, are its temple. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it, and its lamp is Jesus. The nation will walk, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because there is never night there. There is no darkness. Revelation 21. So we sit ourselves in this season. What we're entering into is a time we celebrate Christ being born to the world, we anticipate the world being reborn to Christ. And third, 
We live now in this present tense, which the theologians refer to as the Adventus Sanctificationis, whatever, Sanctificanus, however we say it in Latin, which is the present coming of either holiness or the Holy One, which is where we identify that when he says, a couple of things just to identify in your Bible really quick. Verse five, that light does what in the darkness? Shines It's not past tense. And it's also not just future tense. The light will shine. If you underline just that S, that second S in shines, present tense, the light shines. Or again, in verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That isn't a present ongoing, it's actually imperfect. It's a ongoing coming into the world that the light has not stopped coming. The light has not stopped shining, that Jesus has not stopped speaking his new creation word over not just the past and not just the future, but even our present tense. And so what this means is that we celebrate, we anticipate, and then we prepare our hearts for Christ to be born in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. For that transformation that he is bringing, that light that expels the darkness to, to begin to take its, its dawn within our lives. As the song Joy to the World says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. This is part of what Advent is doing. It's me preparing my life and my heart to be a place that can host the presence of the Holy Spirit so that Christ, his image and his power and his light and life and word may take birth and life within me. So what does it mean to do this? Uniquely this one. Because this one, celebrating, comes pretty easy to us. I'm just inviting you to try to remember and imbue that, infuse that with as much celebration over not just the end of the year, but over the work that Jesus has done. Anticipation and hope. But how do I prepare my heart for the coming of the Holy One? First John, who wrote, this is another one of his prologues. John writes in a letter to a church, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Again, we're, we're darkening, we're blinding ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, bring our sins to the light, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Advent is as much about celebration and anticipation as what has most often been throughout church history, a season of fasting and repentance, of, of, of truly confessing sins, identifying the darkness within and naming it so that we might clear out our hearts to make way for the king, to make way for the light. You see, the danger is in thinking that we can turn Christianity into just another way that we crawl ourselves out of the darkness. So we move past repentance and we just try to do better. Don't do dark, don't do bad stuff anymore, right? And what, what, what we're being invited into seeing is that really the first thing and the main thing in opening up your heart for the 
coming of the Holy Spirit, for the arrival of the light within you is simply to repent and confess and name the darkness within. To no longer pretend and move beyond it, but to simply name the deep need for the light to shine. To name the chaos where you need him to speak his word of life and order. To name the darkness where you need light, the sin where you need forgiveness. And that's actually how you create space to welcome the light in. I think about in our living room, I was this just thinking about this right now, actually, is when in our living room, when we're trying to get ready for like Christmas stuff, um, we, we're an artificial tree family um, because it's wise and smart. And we, okay, sorry. It's just kind of weird to kill a tree and bring it in the house. I guess we're just more eco. I don't know. Um, no, uh, so, but just what's interesting is, you know, we have a, a smaller house because um, we live in LA. And so we, um, to, to figure out, like, we're going to bring the tree in for the, for the weekend, like, for the, you know, the holiday, it, it's, not, it's a game of a bunch of stuff has to get out of here if we're going to bring the tree in. So, like, my, my reading spot, my Ryan chair reading spot with my little, like, orange push that I sit on, and then we've got all my books and a little spot for my coffee and my lamp, my, my little zone for Ryan gets exercised out of the, there's an exorcism that occurs in the living room. My plants... They've got to go, because now that lamp has to go somewhere else in here. So now there's, one of my plants is dying because it's not, it's like indoor plants are, they get cold. They get cold. They're made for outside and my house plant gets cold. He's like, I'm dying now. That's what's happening, right? So I, this, I'm being so stupid. But the whole point of this is just, I, I'm just realizing in real time, you, you, all of you are doing this in some way within your apartments or your homes right now is in order to bring this giant tree in that is going to remind you all week, month long of what this time of year is about that will be the place where all the gifts and the blessings get stowed. You've got to move a bunch of stuff out of the way first to make room for it. You don't, you don't build the tree. You, you, you bring the tree in, but first you open up space for that to happen. That is the practice of confession and repentance. It's simply just looking over the living room of your life and your soul and just going, man, there's furniture, there's dust, there's stuff that's accumulated over the past year that is not befitting of the light of life being in this place. There are habits and postures, which, which I'm, I can't change on my own. I'm, I'm in darkness and ignorance. Like I'm like Jesus said, I'm the one who walks in darkness, doesn't know where they're going. I don't know where I'm going. All I know is that this, it will, will not do, that this has to go. And so repentance and confession is simply naming before God. God, this is here. This has been picked up. This has been accumulated over the past year. And I'm identifying, I want my life and my heart to be one where the coming of the Holy One where the birth of Christ within my life may take place. And so to do so, I, what needs to be cleaned out? And so I just invite you, as we move into this time, just to ponder and wonder, to experience a deeper unveiling and dawning of the light within your life and within your heart. What, what darkness needs to be named? What disorder or chaos needs to be identified? What false optimisms have you been chasing after and finding yourself disappointed? You know, one of the fastest ways to find what needs to be repented of, what needs to be confessed, what needs to be moved out of the living room is you start with your disappointment. What's disappointed you right now? Most often when you follow your disappointment, you'll begin to find some form of darkness that you were trying to overcome yourself 
or an optimism that you placed on something that it wasn't able to live up to it. So we name our disappointment, we go down to the darkness, and it's in that place then that as we bring it in confession and repentance, we find what John says, the light shines in the darkness. Let's pray.